This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. It's not even December yet, and you probably already missed all the holiday specials. It's episode 242 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and, and to, just to say that as if to say, it seems like I miss them every year because they air like a month before Christmas, and I never really understood that. But this week, you are definitely not going to miss our chat about Night Flyers. That's right, the George R.R. R. Martin novella is coming to Sci-Fi starting on December the 5th. I'm going to take you back to San Diego Comic-Con when I was in the press room for Night Flyers. It was very new. There wasn't a whole lot of information about it. Got to talk to some members of the cast and some folks behind the scenes as well to get to the bottom of what this show is about and what you can expect when the show does premiere this coming week. And there's so much more to talk about as well. Let's start with comics, shall we? It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Artis Ficosio, artist of Revolutionaries, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Before you wrap up that long box, drag it out. Also, fire up the laptop and the tablet, because whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and it's time for the partnership to begin between IDW and Marvel Comics. I'm sorry, Marvel Action Spider-Man number one is finally here, and Delilah S. Dawson doing the writing, the amazing Fico Osio on the art, Rhonda Pat- Pattison on the colors, and Sean Lee on the letters. Right off the bat, I'm going to tell you, this is a great jumping on point, and it really feels like an all-ages story. It's not an origin story because Peter Parker is already Spider-Man. I can tell you that much. And it actually starts out with a 16-year-old Peter Parker and, of course, trying to balance life between, you know, being your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man and Peter Parker. Now, in true Peter fashion, he's late for his first day of his internship at the Daily Bugle, and I'll get to more of that here in a second. But, I mean, as you've seen on the cover, he runs into a couple very familiar faces and names, Gwen Stacy and Miles Morales, in the story. You know, something odd's going on in the city. Peter's trying to figure out how to stop it. Maybe he doesn't take it too seriously at first. But, again, that, that, that could be considered classic Peter. And he finds something out about one of those fellow interns that you probably could already guess. But I don't do spoilers here. 
So I'm not going to tell you which one or what that is, even though it's really obvious what it is. I'm not going to be the one that spoils that for you. Now, the one thing I will say, because I can't really dive too much into the story other than the tell it was a really fun story, is that, I mean, this book will remind you why you loved Tom Holland as Spider-Man so much in Spider-Man Homecoming and in Civil War too, for that matter. Peter's just, he's goofy. He's got the one-liners when he's fighting a Spider-Man. He's self-deprecating. He's unsure of himself and still a bit of a Tony Stark fanboy, which is fine. But it's that it's that awestruck and just goofy 16-year-old Peter Parker that you just love. And one of the things that was kind of missing from the comics, wasn't it? I mean, you can't have, you know, lighthearted Peter Parker and Spider-Man all the time. But it feels like things have been rather serious at times in the comics for Peter recently. So this... This was a nice breath of fresh air, actually. We don't get a ton of Miles Morales or Gwen Stacy, but it feels like that's kind of part of the story and part of the foundation that's going to be built on future issues. You know, and, and it's kind of interesting to me that you've got a Peter Parker and Miles Morales at the same age, and Gwen Stacy as well. It's kind of like everybody's on equal footing, not something that we're used to seeing in the comics. So I think it's cool to watch that play out. This book just has a ton of charm. And it doesn't hurt that it has the amazing artwork of Fico Osseo throughout. When I found out he was going to be artist, the artist on this book, I mean, I've loved his work so much and other things. It just made me want to read this even more. So this is one of the most charming Spider-Man stories that I've read in years. Bravo to the entire creative team. It was nice to be able to just sit back, have a good laugh with my friend Peter Parker, and enjoy a Spider-Man story from cover to cover. Loved it. This is a pull for me. Go on out and grab this if you haven't done so already. You will not be disappointed. Taking a little bit more of a serious turn, though, with this next book, LaGuardia number 1 from Burger Books and, of course, Dark Horse Comics. Nydia Okafor on the, on the writing. Tana Ford on the art. James Devlin doing the colors. And Sal Cipriano on the letters. Hopefully I got all those names right. Now, right on the cover, this book actually dubs itself as a, quote, very modern story of immigration. Now, here's the gist. Basically, aliens have come to Earth a while back and settled in Lagos, Nigeria. Now, there we find a man named Citizen. That is his actual name that works at the local university there. Now, he's looking for his girlfriend slash fiance. We think fiance, but it's not really confirmed. And her name is Future. Very interesting names in this book. Now, I do have to spoil one thing about Future. I, I don't like doing spoilers, but this is definitely one that I have to mention in order to even talk about this this book. She's left New York and is also she's left for New York, excuse me, from Nigeria, and is also pregnant. Now, she encounters some trouble at the airport, but actually kind of uses it to her advantage, and you find out why in the next page or two, if you're reading this. Now, we don't really find out why she's there, only that she thinks she'll be better off in New York instead of Nigeria. And there's a whole thing where you have interplanetary airports going on here, and Nigeria is almost, I don't want to say sanctuary for aliens, but it's certainly like, like they're, it's almost like home base for them. It's a comfortable spot that they can go and, and be accepted. Now, 
Then we have Citizen, who gets a bit of a surprise that would probably freak any normal person out, but it doesn't freak him out. Now, the story is definitely intriguing overall, and it makes you wonder what the response would be if this were to really happen. You know, if aliens were to just suddenly come here and find a place to settle. There, there are some things that happen that you, you definitely expect in any kind of a world where we find out that aliens actually exist, you know, like they're here. We don't just have tangible proof. It's standing right in front of us. There, there are some predictabilities that go along with that, and I understand that in a story like this. But I don't think that, you know, I criticized a book earlier this week, downandnerdypodcast.com, for not being original enough in a in a in a time where so many of the so many of these stories are being told and important issues that you know we're tackling in society right now and you know through art you know you kind of bring those things to light and comics being one of those things but the, that book didn't feel all that unique to me this one definitely feels like it's got a unique take and a unique twist on it. And the character designs, too, are very interesting and for the aliens themselves. And I don't want to say creatures because I don't necessarily think that, that, there, that there are creatures. I just think that they're all aliens. So creature-like is the best way that I could really describe it. They don't look like humans. Let's just put it that way. And, and, there, and there's a couple that we get to have a, a lot of exposure to, actually. So... To me, this was very interesting read. I'm not sure exactly how far it's going to go into the extreme parts, but to me, this this one just feels like, and and this is part of the reason, part of the reason that I say this is that Burger Books has built up a pretty good reputation really early on. So while you don't get a ton of tangible information. In this first issue, as far as answers about where the story's going, you at least get a good foundation. You, you're either going to be attached to these characters or you're, or you're not, though. And, and we don't really... Citizen's the most interesting one to me because we don't really understand what he's got going on and, and why she would have left. And it did, you would think it would have something to do with him, but that's maybe not the case either. So it was definitely thought-provoking for me. And I think that this is a story that definitely could have some interesting turns. So I'm going to give this a pickup. I'll give this a couple more issues to see how the story unfolds. I think the second issue, for me at least, will certainly be key. I'll give it a couple more to see how it unfolds. But right now, I've just got a good feeling about this book. My gut tells me that LaGuardia is going to be good well past this first issue. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. We're going to get to some geek tainment as well. We'll do it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Brandon Easton, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Going to be doing something a little bit different for this week in Geektainment, talking about the new Star Wars shorts that are aimed for kids on YouTube. The new Star Wars Kids YouTube channel is launching, and Star Wars Galaxy of Adventures is what I'm going to be talking about. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is I've been kind of struggling with this myself lately and that is when to introduce my son who's four years old going on five to star wars you know he's got you know how kids can be at that age you know they've got short attention spans they don't really want to watch anything that's more than like in my son's case 20 minutes is like his max on anything i can get him to keep his attention for like 20 maybe 30 minutes 
and then that's it. And live action stuff can be hit or miss here and there. So Star Wars says, okay, let's do this. Let's create a series of animated shorts and kind of condense the movies down into these shorts and make them kid-friendly. Because, you know, not everything in Star Wars is kid-friendly. I mean, the whole who shot first thing, not exactly totally kid-friendly, not for that age. Anyway, so this really is focused to the youngest age of Star Wars fans. And if you've seen the trailer, I mean, what we're talking about is an animation style that's somewhere in between anime and a really high-end indie or mobile game. That's the best way that I can really think to describe the animation style, but it seems like there's very much an anime influence in this, and everything's a little bit more over the top. It's very colorful, very vibrant, and I love the fact that they're using the voiceovers the from the original movies. So you've got the characters there in animation, but you're getting the sound from the movie right there in there with it, and it's really, really quick. That's one of the things I really love about it, is that it it really doesn't miss any beats. It doesn't really slow down, but you still get that classic Star Wars feel. And it's a good transition, especially for my son, because I know that he'll see something on a YouTube video that he really likes. Like he was watching, for, for an example, Keep It in the Disney Family. He was watching something on YouTube one day and happened to see Incredibles toys on there. And he seemed drawn to it. He wanted to watch the video a few more times. So I said, okay, son. Well, if you like that, guess what dad's got for you now? So, you know, I showed him the first Incredibles movie, and the rest was kind of history. Now, granted, it took him a while to actually sit down and watch the whole thing. Again, he was in and out in like 15, 20-minute increments, but he finally did it, and he finally got hooked because he saw it on something shorter that he already liked that he found entertaining. And that is the gateway for Star Wars fans, and as a parent... Of, of as a nerd parent myself who wants to raise a nerd child, I think that this is a great way to get them hooked on Star Wars. If you watch the shorts, I mean, as an adult, this isn't made for us. And that's one thing we need to realize. That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it as an adult because at the end of the day, it's still Star Wars. It's still something you love. You're just seeing it in a very, very different form than you're used to seeing it. And there's nothing wrong with that either. But you're still hearing Carrie Fisher. You're still hearing Mark Hamill. You're still hearing James Earl Jones. You're hearing who you want to hear and seeing the things you want to see just in a different form. And and this is basically a tool for parents to get their kids hooked on Star Wars. But there's nothing wrong with that. Because Star Wars is amazing. And there's so many great lessons that can be learned in those stories as well. But now they're being delivered in a little bit of a, I hate to keep using the word safer, because it's not like Star Wars is is really dangerous for kids, but the youngest kids, you don't really want to expose them to certain elements of the Star Wars movies. Maybe some stuff could be too much for them, and it varies kid to kid, too. I'm not going to sit here and say that all kids are the same. I know that to be absolutely not the case. All kids are definitely not the same. So this is a way to expose them, at least initially, to something that you can feel good about, that you can feel safe about. And then once you've got them hooked, once you feel like they want more, then you can introduce them into the live action movies. Or, you know, they've also got, I was checking out the Star Wars YouTube um, 
you, the Star Wars Kids page on YouTube. They've actually got an episode, a couple of episodes, or the first long episode of Star Wars Resistance on there. You've also got Star Wars Rebels that you can introduce them to after that, if you like. There is a linear progression here for introducing kids to Star Wars, but Disney realizes how important the Star Wars franchise is for them going forward, and they want to get people hooked on this product at an early age, and I'm okay with that. Let's give, let's give parents every chance they can to get their kids hooked on something that they got hooked on when they were at a younger age as well, but doing it earlier. I don't think it's too easy to hook a three- and four-year-old on Star Wars, but that's exactly what this is doing. So, yeah, I'm all in for this from what I've seen so far. If you go to the Star Wars Kids YouTube page, it's always star, also StarWarsKids.com, you can see for yourself. Again, it's not exactly shot for shot like the movies. It's pretty darn close, but it's not exactly shot for shot, but just recreating these iconic scenes in a different way and knowing that it's safe for your kids to watch and really, really hoping with both hands as a parent that they're going to love Star Wars as much as you did when you were younger and as you were growing up. Yeah, that's the best thing that I can hope for from this. So I'm going to try this out on my son. Of course, it just came out, so I haven't had a chance to do that yet. going to try this out on my son. I'll try and report back to you on next week's show to let you know how he responded to it, but it's the Star Wars Kids YouTube channel. Let me know what you think of it, too. Tweet me, at down and nerdy 757 Tweet the show, and let me, let me know how your kids are reacting to the Star Wars Kids YouTube page and StarWarsKids.com. That's going to do it for this week in Geektainment and Star Wars Galaxy of Adventures that you can check out on YouTube. Up next, going to be going, to, going through some nerd news, and there's some very interesting stuff going on. We'll talk about it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's Journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's Journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy night? 1920s. New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hey listeners, this is Peter Shinkoda from Daredevil. I play Nobu, and you are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Apparently Netflix and Chill is gone, and Netflix and Cancel has arrived because it's time for nerd news. And I think this is something we've been dreading for a while now, and it's finally happened. Variety is reporting that Daredevil has been canceled 
after three seasons at Netflix, which really isn't too much of a surprise for me. There will be no season four. I mean, this has to have more to do with the contract ending and moving to Disney Plus than anything else because Daredevil was far and away the best Marvel Netflix series. Say what you want about some of the others, which were also good and all really had their moments in the seasons that they had. Nothing even came close to me to Daredevil. It was just so well done. It was also the first one that they did, so there's always going to be a little bit more love for Daredevil, I think. But at the same time, if you watch season three, which was amazing, and I won't spoil anything about it just in case. I know it's been a while and it should be okay to talk about, but I'm not getting yelled at by anybody for this. So, I will say this. At the end of season three, if you watched it, didn't it really feel like it was a conclusion? Like you could have left it there and you'd be good, right? Some loose ends got tied up. There was still, a, there were, I, I get that there was still a singer, a stinger at the end of season three. I understand. I'm not saying it was completely wrapped up. There were still things that were left there for a season four. Not saying that there aren't. But it still felt like there was a conclusion there, right? Like, if it did get canceled, we'd be good with where they left her. At least that's how I felt. But it also could have led to a new beginning for the show should it, be, should it have been allowed to go on. Now, there's no word on whether or not Disney Plus will revive any of these series, but there was a little statement, and I'm paraphrasing in the, in the release from Netflix, that something about how the first seasons will remain on Netflix for a while, but that Daredevil will live on in other Marvel properties. And I'm thinking, okay, wait a second. So what does that mean exactly? Because does that mean that they're kind of confirming a shift to Disney Plus and that we will see these shows back? Will we see Marvel limited series like we're getting with a Loki series? Is that what they're going to do? Are we going to try and see maybe a Daredevil movie now because of how successful and how great the Matt Murdock character was from Charlie Cox and everybody else that was involved in the show? There are a ton of possibilities for Daredevil. It just doesn't feel over for the character. But here's one thing I want to know from you. Does this make you now less interested in the next season of Jessica Jones and the next season of Punisher, because you almost feel like you know for sure those are the next dominoes to fall, and it's only a matter of time, right? So, I don't know. To me, this is a very sketchy answer. I'm not sure it makes me look forward to it less. Or maybe there's a power in knowing, if you're the content creator, then this is where things are going to go. Although, think about what they know that we don't know. They already know the answers to the questions that I'm asking. They just can't say anything, or I'm assuming that they do. Somebody knows and isn't saying anything. And, you know, they don't necessarily have to tell us. That's the frustrating part. So they can leave us dangling and then let us be excited when it actually occurs and comes back and we get all happy. So I guess only time will tell, but I'm still bummed out that it, this is, at least for now, an end for the best, probably the best Marvel TV series that they had, period, as far as I'm concerned. Netflix is picking up a different property in live action, however, according to Entertainment Weekly, Cowboy Bebop will be coming to live action on Netflix for 10 episodes at least in the first season anyway. Andre Nemec and Josh Applebaum from Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, Jeff Pinker, Pinkner, excuse me, from Fringe, and Scott Rosenberg from Nightfall are all listed as showrunners. So it's just almost just as many showrunners 
as we have Cowboys at this point. And then Christopher Yost, of course, handled the writing for the last two Thor movies, will write the first episode. Now, before you say, hold on a second, you know, are they just going to do this on their own? Shinjiro Watanabe is the original director, of course, of the anime, is going to be a consultant. And before you scoff at that, think about what Image has done with their TV series like Happy. They're doing it with Deadly Class. Having the creative teams of the comics be consultants on those shows sort of worked out for them. I'm not saying that means it'll automatically work out for this, that it's not like there's no precedent that it won't work out and that the the consultant title is just a title and that alone. I can't say that it is or it isn't in this case, but it's worked out fine in the past. Now, in case you're not familiar with the story, it's based on a group of bounty hunters called cowboys who hunt down dangerous criminals across the solar system after humanity had to leave an un- uninhabitable Earth. Now, I won't get into all the details and all that because I'm sure they're going to cover it in the first season of the show. But for fans of the anime, you know that there's a lot of inspiration that comes from the jazz and the music. And that has to factor in to this new show. Now, I understand the hesitation to do this, okay? I really, really do. Especially with the track record that has come with live-action anime adaptations, in America anyway. And on Netflix specifically. But the reaction seems largely positive, or at least largely hopeful from the fans that I've seen. I mean, if this fails, though, it might be time for the live-action anime adaptations to just go away altogether. Maybe it's time to stop trying these. It's okay for something to just live in animation. I don't understand why we have to keep doing this. I hope it's good, though. At the same time, I hope it's awesome. And this is also Netflix's chance to right the ship. For something that they didn't do well. I didn't hate Death Note. A lot of people did. And I totally understand why they did. And I understand that, you know, there's been mixed reactions to the Bleach live action adaptation. About Full Metal Alchemist. I've heard that that was pretty bad. I I didn't even give that one a chance, if I'm being honest. But this is Netflix's chance to get it right. And, speaking of canceling Daredevil, this kind of sets them up for a world without Marvel. If they can start getting this stuff right, because this could be a really uncharted version of sci-fi and live action that they could do. It could really be groundbreaking if it's done right. But that, for right now anyway, is a big, big if. And I'm really hoping that this is one that pays off for Netflix because it's a really cool concept. And I don't think that integrating the music is going to be a problem. I'm not sure why some fans do think it's going to be a problem. I don't think they'll ignore that. I don't think they'll, you know, beat us over the head with it either. But I think that that's something easy that you could apply to live action here. Of course, casting is going to be very, very important to make sure you cast the right characters. I mean, the right actors for the job. Make sure it's authentic. I mean, there's a lot of considerations that need to be made here. I really would like to think that Netflix has learned from its past mistakes but only time will tell. We don't really know for sure because there's not a ton of information other than the blank, blank synopsis that we got from the, you know, the, the very nondescript synopsis, I should say, that we've gotten from the show so far. So we're, again, in a wait-and-see mode. This one is very interesting for me, though, and that is that the rap reporting that Blue Beetle is going to be getting his own movie from D.C., and Warner Brothers. And first off, we'll have the Mexican-born Gareth Dunnett Eloser 
is going to be writing the script. And why that's significant is, is that this is going to be the first Latino superhero movie for DC and Warner Brothers because the focus is going to be on the Jamie Reyes version of the character. That doesn't mean we won't see Ted Cord. If you've read the comics recently, there's kind of a duality there where you see both characters at the same time and working together in a certain sense. So it's not like there is not going to be a Ted Cord in this movie, but the Blue Beetle will be Jamie Reyes. Now, this could really work if they bring out the fun side of both Reyes and Cord that we saw in the comics recently. I mean, there was certainly some serious stuff that happened, but if you decide to go ahead and focus, kind of like, kind of like what they were doing with Shazam. I understand that it's a little bit of an apples and oranges comparison, but just follow me on this theme-wise anyway. So far, what we've seen from Shazam, it's very fun. It's very light, going to appeal to a mass amount of age ranges from the young to the older comics fans who hope that it's done the way that they want it to be done. And of course, I mean, getting a live action Latino superhero in his own feature movie is certainly not the end of the world. I know we've got we've got Renee Montoya that's going to be in Birds of Prey, and I know that we've had El Diablo, but this is Blue Beetle in a highlight form, getting a Latin superhero pushed into the forefront in a solo movie, which I think is I think it's an important thing. And this isn't just a nothing character either. I understand where you're on Blue Beetle, really. I mean, you're you're going down the list of. Who's getting a movie and Blue Beetle is on that list before some other characters? Okay, I understand that. And the fact that we might see a Blue Beetle movie before a Green Lantern movie or before a Flash movie. Totally understand that, but again, what's the problem with that? You have to see the bigger picture. It's not about how big the character is in mainstream comic book culture. Because this could appeal to such a wide audience and it's a chance to bring a little bit more diversity to DC films... Not to mention, I mean, think about it. The suit and what it can do is pretty cool alone. I mean, an alien armor that can create all of this different stuff and enhance your speed and strength, that's pretty awesome. And think about the toys, the possibility for toys and and stuff that you can sell from this. It's almost a no-brainer if you really, really want to sit down and think about it. But, speaking of that, marketing for this movie is going to be very very key. I still kind of look at the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie that Marvel did as the gold standard for marketing for a property that not a lot of people knew about outside of diehard Marvel fans, really. Not everybody knew who the Guardians of the Galaxy were. It's not like dealing with the Avengers where even if you're not a comic book fan and you're a casual movie fan, you're going to know who the Avengers are likely. Okay, but you're not going to know who Blue Beetle is. You certainly weren't going to know who the Guardians of the Galaxy were. But the way they marketed that movie and just showed how fun it was going to be. And it's almost like they went with the who cares if this is a comic book movie aspect. It was just fun. You had some, you you know, people with enhanced abilities. I won't necessarily call them superheroes. Technically they are. But I won't necessarily call them that. But the way it was marketed was this was just a regular ragtag group of losers who like to have fun and just might save the world at the same time. And while Blue Beetle is certainly not does not fit that description, there's certainly plenty of fun to be had. Certainly the whole struggling teenager 
trying to deal with this new ability and this new suit that he has and juggling his life. That has to be a part of it. I realize that's a little cliche, but you can't not do it at the same time. I think that this is a very, very interesting idea that DC and Warner Brothers have decided to do, which could absolutely blow up in their face, but could absolutely work out way better than some fans might expect. So let's keep our eye on this one. Before we move on, how about another anime that's going to be coming? seems like there's been a lot of talk about anime coming to Netflix lately. And then Adult Swim says, hold our beer. We've got one for you as well. Blade Runner going to be having an anime coming to Adult Swim. And yes, they did have that successful anime for Blade Runner last year. But this is going to be a 13 half hour episode or it's going to be called Blade Runner Black Lotus. What that means Nobody seems to know because they're not really releasing any information about it other than saying, hey, this is happening. By the way, Crunchyroll is going to have the global streaming rights just in case you were wondering about that. So it's kind of like a dual partnership there. Now, it will be inspired by Blade Runner 2049. That that much we do know and that it will take place in 2032 and feature some familiar characters that we already know. So it's not like we're going to go in and not know who any of these characters are. Although, would that be terrible if that were to happen to introduce us to some new characters? Because to me, it feels like Blade Runner, it just feels like there's so much more to this story that we haven't seen yet. It feels like there's so much more that we could do with this and that could be created from this world that we've only really seen in two movies in one anime. Think about the vast an unexplored jungle that we have here in front of us with Blade Runner. The only problem with that is, is that when you go exploring through the jungle, sometimes you're going to find ancient ruins that are really amazing and are a treasure trove of artifacts and just amazing history. But you could also find tigers and shit. And that's not something that you want to deal with. You don't want to die because a poisonous spider bit you in the middle of the jungle. And you can't find your way out. So just because there's so much that could be looked at here doesn't mean that it's automatically going to work out. I do think that there's a little less pressure, even though the the cult following of the Blade Runner fandom is very strong. I do think there's low pressure here because there's a way to give us something new and yet still keep within the canon of Blade Runner. And I think that that would be very, very simple to accomplish. I mean, that's a little... I I shouldn't... I don't necessarily mean that the way it sounds. Nothing is easy, okay? It's not like you can just sit down and just start writing and all of a sudden, magically, you'll have a winner on your hands. It still has to make sense and it still has to capture audiences and be a good story. So that in that aspect, it's not simple. But at the same time, it's not like you're adapting something that already has... 500 comic books in several decades of history that somebody's going to point to and go, wait a second, you can't do that because of this. Because there's so much unexplored and uncharted territory for the Blade Runner story, there are very few things that are deal breakers to me when it comes to trying to do something new. So I'm very interested to see how much they're going to lean on what we already know in characters that we've already seen and how much they're going to go, you know what? Let's just do this. Let's do something different and see what happens. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to dive into the world of Night Flyers before the upcoming premiere this week. 
That is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Patrick Fischler from Happy on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. A lot of mystery surrounds the TV adaptation of Night Flyers, the George R.R. Martin novella that is coming to Sci-Fi this Sunday night. And when I was at San Diego Comic-Con, there was a ton of mystery surrounding the show. There were so many people that didn't really know what it was about, what was going on. So I really wanted to get in there and find out from the cast and the producers themselves what was going to be going on with Night Flyers because it seemed really interesting. And actually, the first question that was asked of executive producers Gene Klein and David Bartis when they sat down was, what was it about Night Flyers that made it a project that you wanted to work on? It's how unique it is. I mean, um, obviously, when uh, a writer brings you a novella from George R.R. Martin, uh, you're paying attention very carefully in the meeting. But uh, Jeff brought a really unique, authentic, original vision to an already interesting piece of material. And, that, and, um, and, and then as we started to talk about developing it, we talked about, you know, adding uh, a layer of honesty to all of the craziness um, that we try to bring to everything that we do. Um, but it was really just how unique the vision for the show well, was. And, and I think I, I tried to get this out on the panel. Jeff pitched us the teaser that you saw on screen. He, he literally pitched us that teaser in the room and we're like, oh my god, that's, un, you know, it, it was such great storytelling. And then he kind of laid out the show for us. But, you know, like Gene said, like we, we're much more character driven. We've never done horror before. We've done some sci-fi, but, you know, we... We approach this from a, as much of a character place as possible, and I think that's one of the things that made it feel different than, hopefully, than other things you've seen like. And when he pitches that teaser, we wanted to know what happened to Agatha. Like, what, what, how, how did the show, how did the events of the show get to that point? And that's character success. With adaptations, there's often certain liberties that are taken at times. So another question that was asked was, how closely is this first season going to follow that novella? The first season follows the arc of the novella, but we set up the end of the show so that it can go further, but we really follow the template that he laid out in the book. The book's only 100 pages, so you know it's not Game of Thrones where there's multiple books, hundreds and hundreds of pages, so we, it's basically a launching point. After hearing that, my question was, does that give them more freedom to kind of do something a little bit different after this first season or even during the first season? Do, do you feel like that kind of gives you more freedom? Because I know there's always a balance between, you know, honoring the source material and doing something new. Do you feel like you have a little bit more freedom because there is only a short bit? Totally, yeah. because we had to be true to the spirit of 100 pages. We had, it didn't have to be true to a specific set of events or, or plot points. Any fans of the novella know that this is connected to the Thousand Worlds series from George R. R. Martin as well, so could that be connected in TV as well? I think the way Jeff has talked about it is that, um, you know, because obviously First Contact is sort of the premise of our show, the Thousand Worlds is not front and center at the beginning of our show. It's possible that our show exists in that universe and that's where we sort of progress to, um, but we're sort of... Backing it up earlier, yeah. In in George, in the novella, there's already been alien contact, and there's multiple, you know, alien species. And we thought for this, you know, it'd be more dramatic if it was the first contact, and nobody's ever seen an alien species before. Or our 
characters have it. All right, cool. There's definitely a horror aspect to this show, so someone asked executive producers Gene Klein and David Bardis about what kind of scares we can expect in the show in this first season. I mean, I think a lot of what you saw in the, in the show, you know, with Agatha and the Saw and Rowan going after her, I mean, that's, that's very emblematic of what this series is. I mean, it's, uh, it's, vis it's visceral, like you, you saw there. I'd say we, our Jeff, the creator, was uh, not, not necessarily. There are some jump scares in the show, but I wouldn't say it's a jump scare show. We tend to rely more on you feeling dread for a character. Um, so it's, it's psychological it's, horror. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of psychological horror. There's a lot of death. Yes. And we we knew that you know doing this show there'd be people from fans of Game of Thrones who were going to expect that and we felt like there was an obligation to deliver on that. So the guys were talking about first contact with alien life so I wanted to ask when you make that reveal how do you really do it and make it stand out? When you're dealing with alien life and a reveal of something that like on a show like this how do you go about when you make that reveal? Like you don't want to do it too soon but you don't want to do it too late. Yeah. How do you decide when the right Well in this case the novella was a guiding principle. Uh, the, the actual reveal of alien life happened at the end of the novella and it happens at the end of you know the end of our but, but we're also believers in like less is more you know like Jaws like you know once you've seen the shark not so scary is right. not seen yeah so yeah we, we, we very much honor that in the show no and you know we talk about like a movie like I, that I love about like Signs great movie right. kind of until you right. see the alien and then it, it, that's the end of the movie right. you know? <laughs> Next up to sit down, it was Gretchen Moll, who plays Dr. Agatha Matheson, and David Ajala, who plays Roy Eris, on the show. And they were asked how they approached their characters going in and also ended up giving us some pretty interesting information about what we can expect as far as how much the show will be adapted to the novella. You know, when you start a project, you kind of go into, you just are sort of pulling threads anywhere you can. And, you know, in this case, we had this novella. There was a film made that we were sort of told in both cases, take those with a grain of salt. We are creating, in a way, a new thing with, with uh, George's blessing. But basically, we have the sort of skeleton here. And... So we went into it all, I think, a little bit. You just go off that first pilot script, you know? And in my case, I read that first teaser scene, which is what we saw in the, um, in the thing we just did. And that was what I, that was in the first, you know, 10, I don't know, seven to eight pages of the script. I was kind of sold. I wanted to just do the things that she did, and I was really curious how she got there. And uh, hopefully you will be too. Things aren't exactly sunshine and rainbows for Agatha in the scene that they're talking about. So Gretchen Moll actually was talking about her screams that she was doing during that scene. Listen to this. I feel like over the years my screams have gotten better. <laughs> they come from a more guttural place, uh, a more real place. Yeah, I, I know I've screamed at other things 
uh, early in my career, I suppose, but I, I've not been much of a screamer, and I enjoyed it very much. I got to, sc I screamed a lot in this show, and uh, you do it good. It, I enjoyed it. Good. I think that's why it's good because I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. That was important. Yeah. Because one of the guys asked the question um, about how do you. Uh, embrace a genre like science fiction and this tell this type of story. And it's true what you're saying about you know going back to cowboys and Indians. You have to have a level of conviction which is very simple and um uh, reachable. You know, we're in we're in space and Vulcan and you have to simplify it. We wanna survive. I like her, she doesn't like me. You have to really just simplify it. And I find by making it so simple it feels less heavy and more from here. And hopefully that will um, read well on the screen, even though we're in space. These themes should carry well universal. In case you didn't know, David Jowell's character on Night Flyers is actually a hologram, so how do you go about preparing for that, he was asked. Actually, I was in drama school uh, just over 10 years ago, and one of the courses I did in my, during my training was hologram acting. So that helped. How did they go? That's a thing. You I believed you. I Now, the hologram, I, the first thing I did on set was, I'm a hologram. How does a hologram act? <laughs> and I just channeled my inner hologram. I simplified it. I'm just like, I'm a hologram because everyone else thinks I'm a hologram. I don't wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and go, hey, I'm a hologram. I just got on with it. Yeah. Like, so but I remember you was, said, was I hope this isn't giving too much away, but there's, no, I, it is actually. <laughs> <laughs> this idea of, we almost had it. Yeah, no. Do you ever have system updates where you're just stuck in one position for like five minutes until you're it's happened. It happened once when he was using the toilet. <laughs> That was a bit awkward because he was like, oh. <laughs> and then it came out, you know, slightly constipated. Um, no, I think you were going to mention when I spoke about uh, being able to touch things. Right, or people being able to touch you. Like yeah. you don't realize that you might use a thing. And, yeah, and that option is taken away yeah. because you can't. And it's so weird because when you have the option taken away, you can't touch. It's, it's a weird sensation. Playing off of that, one of the things I wanted to ask both David Ajala and Gretchen Moll was, you know, how do you play emotion-wise as an actor when you are a hologram or you're with a hologram, like, you just can't, like, touch anybody or anything? How do you deal with the emotions of that, too? Like, you're, play you're basically playing against a hologram, you're like, oh, I hate that guy, but he's a hologram. So, what do you, do? How, as, a, as an actor and an actress, how do you play that connection? Um, again, well, I didn't really, we didn't have a lot of real, like, interactive scenes like that, but uh, it's, again, a level of sort of um, suspension of disbelief, you know, like, I, one of my first lines, actually, when we're in the launch is you come out and it's like, so why is, he's, he's a projection, you know, I'm yeah, sort of making yeah. sense out of it, and, and, uh, Again, once you're given that information, you sort of have to accept it within the rules of the world, and then it just is, you know, and, and it doesn't really change anything because you're still getting the back and forth. Yeah. Finally got a chance to, to chat with Ian Mackin, who plays Carl DeBrannon on the show, and Jodie Turner-Smith, who plays Melantha Gerald 
Now we had to know what made them so excited to be a part of something like Night Flyers. I was excited to play someone as interesting as Melantha, number one. Um, I was, you know, the fact that it was something written by George R. R. Martin was a huge draw. You know, you're like, because obviously, I mean, I'm a big fan of Game of Thrones, and I was like, uh, you know, wow, George R. R. Martin, like, what's it going to be about? And then the biggest thing for me was when I read that, you know, when I read that first script. <laughs> I read the teaser, and I was like, and then I just kept going, and I was just like, wow. I really loved the writing. I loved the characters. I loved the fact that, you know, it was coming from such a great source material. You know what? It's, it's, it's so exciting to me and interesting, and, and I love, you know, it's definitely something I'm not mad at, that people are like, oh, yeah, we could totally believe that about you. Do you know what I mean? Like, you, you can embody, like, will you embody this character who is, you know, genetically kind of super and I'm like wow that's that's really fucking cool and it's more like okay challenge accepted and also but, but with Melantha it was also about like you know I wanted to, to to think about well what is it about if you have spent your entire life being told that you are training for something or being told that you want to do this and then you get the opportunity to finally go out on that mission and do that and like how, how does that feel you know how does it feel to have your, uh, your, your, your future kind of determined for you you know to not sort of choose your your destiny and I think the more important thing is it's like on paper it's like yeah she's genetically perfect and da 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 but it's like she's still human and so it was like how do I find sort of the humanity what is what is approachable about this about this woman you know it's kind of like and I, I likened it to sort of you know maybe being like a, a ballerina you know somebody who spends her whole life doing something that's so athletic and so hard on your body and you're like you know and and doing this training and it's like you know who are you outside of that and so really that was more so what went into it for me is thinking like okay well not about the ways in which she's perfect but what are the ways in which she's not perfect and that she's you know she hasn't chosen something so like how does she feel about that what does that mean earlier the producers talked about the show being very character driven so ian went on to talk about why he thinks that that might make the show work yeah i mean i i think that's why the show is going to work and, and why the characters are so complex is because they they end up with very very specific journeys that, that kind of all impinge upon each other. I mean, I, I found the interesting about Carl and Brandon and, and the question is kind of what you're willing to sacrifice and everybody's version of what they're willing to sacrifice for the greater good or for themselves is very subjective and it's very different. So what you might think is the right thing to do impinges upon somebody else. Carl Brandon is, is, is obsessed about this idea of, of finding these aliens and hoping that they can kind of uh, help save the world but there's also a very personal reason for that but you know when does your kind of own personal goal or kind of personal personal kind of story impinge or encroach or cause other people the potential to die and then what's that going to kind of what's that going to cost you and what's it going to cost them we know that flashbacks will be a part of night flyer so i wanted to ask them both how that's going to impact their character and how much we're going to learn from those. Well, the producers are talking about how the show will incorporate flashbacks as well. How does that impact your characters in those flashbacks and how much information will we actually get? You'll get all the information. There's, it created and growth is hugely because the, it's, it's very much a part of the kind of flashbacks are all very much kind of part of what the kind of the texture and the fabric of what the characters are and why they're doing what they're doing. I, I can't really tell you very much because I said we, we don't want to, especially in the first episode, you will learn an awful lot about it. But, yeah, it, it, the reason for what they're doing is heavily embedded in the past and also kind of in terms of what you're trying to change. The idea that these aliens can, you know, they don't know what they can or can't 
don't do, but we hope they can do something. We also don't know if they're good or bad or whether what you're going to do is actually going to be the wrong thing to do. So, yeah, we have no idea what we're no flying idea. into, but we're, you know, we have this radical belief in Carl de Brannan, but, you know, his vision for what is could be possible for us, which is, you know, getting this technology from this alien being that will allow us to, you know, to, to make humanity survive. And, and, at, and at what point does you, do you possibly kind of go, well, what are the sacrifices we need to go based off of theory? Yeah. Based on that, somebody asked a great question about how much a science versus faith aspect is going to work into the story. Yeah, massively. Science versus faith versus humanity. and you know, it, 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 It's not as simple as we're going to go and do this. If it doesn't work out, it's fine. Because you could all die. Yeah. And also, if you do do that, what if you, what if you meet aliens and they now know that you exist? Are they then going to end up coming back and deciding that you're not worthy? Because, like, Angus Sampson's character is um, kind of like Jeff Goldblum's character in, in, uh, in Jurassic Park. He's all about not chaos theory as such, but the idea that maybe what you're doing has a butterfly effect to something you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's correct because by you encroaching upon that, the aliens might see you and go, oh, well, you know, <laughs> you kind of already destroyed anything else, you're a parasite. So you don't know if what anything you're doing is actually the correct thing to do, and that's going to then encroach upon. It doesn't matter how perfect Melantha is, if you know you get kind of embedded yeah. in this in this kind of mission that's kind of not gonna make sense. So with such a small crew and just you know on a ship in the outer reaches of space, how is that working out for the characters on the show? That was one of the questions that was asked. I mean, and that's the thing: it's this sort of claustrophobic cabin fever thing. That's what what's what we find out, and it, you know, like you saw in that, one of those clips that they played. It's like you know, we set off to save humanity, but who will save them? And, you know, I would even add who would save us from ourselves, you know, and I think that's the, the kind of always sort of the conversation in, in humanity is it's like what's really more harmful to us as humans, is it really what's outside of us or is it really us, you know, and um, so yeah. Yeah, I can agree with what you just said. <laughs> so after that was over, I kind of walked away with a little bit better of an idea of what Night Flyers was all, all about. And then you see the clips that have been released and the trailers and things like that. And it's being billed as The Shining in space. And will they find what they need to save humanity? And how will the aliens be revealed? There's so many great questions that are involved in Night Flyers that I, I just... I The one word that... I kept coming away with about the show was intrigued. I'm just so intrigued to see how it's going to be presented and to see how the story is going to be driven forward. If the flashbacks will work as well as everyone seems to think they're going to, there's a lot at play here and I can't wait to see what's going to happen this Sunday on sci-fi Sunday, December the 2nd at 10 PM. Make sure you're watching night flyers to see for yourself. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to everyone at Sci-Fi for letting me be a part of the Night Flyers Press Room at San Diego Comic-Con. If you want to find out more information on our interviews from San Diego Comic-Con or any other past shows or anything like that, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Make sure you're following us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash downandnerdy and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. A little bit of a programming note. Next week's show, episode 243, going to be airing on Thursday instead of Friday to coincide with the Game Awards. They're going to be happening. We'll have a couple of interviews and interesting stuff going on happening with that. So next week's show going to drop on Thursday morning, not on Friday as usual. So just be ready for that. And be ready for this, too. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.